Hello, this is Harrison Kim, and you're listening to Working with People by PaveStep. The Working with People podcast is for executives, managers, and people leaders. We bring people experts together to provide you with relevant content on how to think about and manage your most important asset, your talent. We have John here with us today. How are you, John? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I am doing well. Thanks for coming on a Sunday. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure, and thanks for being flexible, because with no daycare and no childcare right now and two working parents, Saturdays and Sundays are actually the best day to get me right now. <laughs> it's definitely more than a challenge if you have young kids, and I think anyone has mm. their challenge, but it's also a huge opportunity during this pandemic for employers to show their care, compassion, and think thoughtfully about the employee experience and to show how much they care. Absolutely. And that's our topic today, employee experience. So I'll dive into it shortly here, but tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Sure. So my name is John Vasilina. I'm a human resources practitioner. My background is is in learning and development, organization development. And for a a brief period of time, I actually designed software and owned my own co-working business. Now I just consider myself a talent and organization development practitioner. Awesome. So let's dive right into it. So how do you think about employee experience? Like, What does it actually mean? So for me, the employee experience is the sum of the experiences that our people and organizations have with the touch points that are relevant to the employee life cycle. And although I say employee life cycle, I think that can actually be even a little bit extended to the candidate life cycle and, and mm-hmm. you know the candidate experience. And then Really, really, really importantly, the exit experience that people have and, and even the connection they have to the organization when they're not working there. There's places that I've worked. I'll give you an example. Um, Genentech is a place I worked many years ago. I worked there for almost 10 years. It was my first job out of college. I haven't been there forever, but I still feel very favorable about the company and mm. I'm always rooting for it and want it to succeed, even though I don't work there. And I, I kind of consider that part of the employee experience as well. So it's the before, during, and after touch points with a lot of emphasis while you're an employee somewhere. But it's, it's how you make people feel and how we essentially put people into the states to give their best, whatever that is at an individual level, to the organization. Yeah, it's interesting because I think given the last 10 years or so of huge talent acquisition needs until pandemic, really, I think that's you know shined a lot of spotlight on the candidate experience and putting that alongside or putting it within the employee experience as well? For organizations I've worked in, which I've, I've really had positive experiences with all of them, but still a cheerleader, even as an alumnus, when right. people ask me what it was like to work there or should they consider working there. So I, I think it's, it's important. So if you think about employee experience from a like framework perspective, what are the major components that people should be thinking about? Because you know some of their audience are familiar with employee lifecycle from recruiting to exiting and all of, all of that good stuff, but some are not. If you could give a quick overview on that, that would be really helpful. Sure. And I probably think about things a little bit differently than most HR practitioners because of the time I spent in software development and running a co-working space. But I'm a big fan of journey mapping and figuring out what people are trying to accomplish and what that looks like and how people are feeling at any given moment, as well as how we'd like them to feel. So if we knew that as a new hire that we want to have enroll in benefits, 
they might actually feel overwhelmed. And what we really want them to feel is excited and then design a process that evokes that the desired emotional state. Along with that, I'm also a big fan of using the concept of user stories that comes from agile software development, which is simply, you know, as a certain user type that wants to do something so that they can actually reach a bigger goal. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of user stories, interviewing people, segmenting people. So what the big watch out I have for employee experience is that one size doesn't fit all. In fact, one size mm. probably fits very few. Right. And when we don't do these things like interview employees and figure out what they're actually trying to accomplish and, and map out what the process looks like and maybe how the employee feels along the way, we're at risk of designing for ourselves. And of course, as practitioners, who are already in the organization right. uh, in, in many cases, we're blind to the real needs. Being clear on what we need people to do, how we want them to feel, and then mapping things out using journey mapping is an incredibly effective way to figure out what that experience needs to be. And then, of course, mapping it up to what the organization's needs are and the employee life cycle, you know, which is essentially we want to attract people, right? We, we want to onboard, develop, retain them, reward them, celebrate the moments that matter in the company's history and in their lives. And then when it's time for them to move on, which I think is for many employees, just part of the experience that a lot of people are going to have, how we move them on along to where they're going next in a really compassionate and great way so that they, they still are fans of our company. That's really helpful. So what tactics have you seen work really well in the areas where there are the biggest gaps? I think offboarding is an area that people really don't focus on. I mean, we focus on the candidate experience. We focus mm -hmm. on onboarding. But I think offboarding is one of these things which is happens frequently that is, is really not well focused on at all, and it can make a huge difference. I'm on my way back to an employer that I worked for previously. There's a lot of reasons why I decided to rejoin that organization, but one of the reasons that I felt comfortable even pursuing it was because of the tact and care that was taken in the offboarding. When I quit, so to speak, I told my manager, um, I'm going to take a job at a different company, not this one. And he said, all right, can you hang around for a few minutes? I know you have childcare in the afternoon, but let me just get on this phone call so I can, and, and wrap something up and then I'd like to chat with you. I was really, really nervous. Like, what is he going to say? Because <laughs> right. I felt like I had an important role, that I was doing a good job and that he might might be even upset that I was leaving. And, and maybe that was a little bit uh, of a self-inflated view of myself, I guess, in retrospect, as I say it out loud. But he came over and he said, hey, first of all, congratulations. Like, I'm going to be sad to lose you. I'd love to hear more about the job and just congratulations. And so I told him what the job was. And he said, well, you know, that totally aligns to your interest areas. I don't think it's something I could have offered you very quickly in this role. I'm really going to miss having you on the team but I'm also really happy for you. If it wouldn't be weird, could I take you out to dinner on your last day to just say congratulations for your new beginning? And that's exactly what this person did. And he said, you know, you never know the way life's going to be. If you ever want to come back, right. I, we'd love to have you. I think if there was a position where your skills fit our needs and I just wish you the best of luck professionally and personally. And so that was probably one of the best offboarding experiences anyone could have asked for. It turned out I actually went and now going back to that organization <laughs> right. and I, I start tomorrow. So I think if we taught managers how to have that kind of an offboarding conversation 
and there was an exit survey and all that. And I was, I'm told that that organization actually looks at the data, but I've worked at organizations where we exit people and there, you know, we had somebody in charge of onboarding, but there was nobody in charge of offboarding. Right. And I think that's a missed opportunity. In that case, I think we got lucky. I, I don't think the organization had a ton of people thinking about offboarding as a subject, but that's, that's the way we want to move organizations so that we, we are exiting our employees, which is just part of the deal, in a way where the door can be open for the ones that we want back. And we help people find the best, the best thing for them and maybe have positive things to say about the organization in their, in their next journey. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because I think a lot of organizations see offboarding as this administrative checkbox or task yes. where they're like, okay, we need to get their paper signed. We need to get these legal things signed. We need to get the laptop, et cetera. And frankly, it's, I think oftentimes the experience itself is completely forgotten. Yeah. So I think that's, that's one area where offboarding is tremendous opportunity mm-hmm. for people. Even earlier than that, I think the other is career development. I had the fortune of running Genentech's career lab for a little while, and, and I think they did things really well, and I think they continue to do really great things in terms of the employee experience. So pardon if many of my examples here are Genentech-focused, mm-hmm. but they did a good job. They had an internal career center. I believe it's still in existence. Mm-hmm. The rationale for it, as I understood it at the time, was that the company had grown significantly by hitting what was kind of an anomaly in terms of drug milestones. So many drugs went to market at once that the the company grew really quickly. Mm, And mm. then the business grows based on the science. And then there were essentially, there was going to be a lag in approvals. And we didn't want to lose all these great people that we've helped get on board and helped assimilate into the company. So they started an internal career center to keep people engaged and explore the careers that were available while they were there. And that sometimes that meant an upward move. Sometimes it meant a lateral move. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that meant just assessing what you really want and figuring out that you were maybe in the best spot and you should just stay where you were, but maybe change your style, go about it differently. I think that's another area in terms of employee experience where a lot of companies are, are maybe underserving their employees. That career center, you could have three to five visits with a career counselor per year. There were assessments you could take. If you were interviewing for a job internally or applying for a job internally, you could get resume help that's or you cool. could get... Oh, it was awesome. It was probably one of my favorite jobs. I led the career center as an interim manager for a little while and then worked there under the new manager that was hired. It was some of the most satisfying work in my career because it helped people go from this passive consumer of the employee experience to being an active co-creator of what their employee experience was going to be. So we taught people skills like informational interviewing. I mean, they took values assessments. And at least then, if people were then going to leave, they were making an informed choice. And maybe mm-hmm. it really was that after looking at a values inventory, thinking about where the company's needs are, thinking about where your skills are, you know, I would say maybe you actually do need to go somewhere else. At least you're making a good decision or a more informed decision. And then we can break up and still be friends. There's no hard feeling. So that's the other area that I think employers can invest a lot is career development because that takes it from this us and them, you know, we design the employee experience and you consume it mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. a real partnership model, which is, I think, where people want to be. And if anyone wants to know more, I'm sure they can search for the, the Genentech Career Lab and, you know, people there did presentations at conferences and there's some good, good information out there already. Yeah, that's really cool. I've actually not heard of that idea before, but I can definitely see how it'd be really helpful. 
them and create that kind of relationship where employees feel like they're partners and they feel like they're developing their career and they're taking control of their career development. So that's really cool. Thinking about these initiatives, how do you think about measuring the impact of these initiatives? A lot of leaders, whether people leaders or senior executives or whoever it may be, they understand the importance of employee productivity, retention, and engagement, of course. But I think oftentimes they have a hard time proving direct impact or return on investment. How have you done that in the past, or what do you think are some best practices in doing that? I mean, I've done it all different ways in the past, ranging from poorly to well, Um, (laughs) (laughs) if I'm being quite frank. But what I found works best is to be able to show value, you've got to start right from the beginning, and you've got to know the problem that you're trying to solve. And this is where I see a lot of practitioners screw it up, to be quite frank. They get a directive that we need to go do something because somebody Mm -hmm. said so. And we jump right into action. And while I'm a big fan of having a high pace and and a fast pace, and I think we should be responsive as practitioners so that we can meet those business needs, there's something to be said for understanding the problem that you're solving. So one of the things I do now, regardless of whether I'm asked to do it or not, is I create the business case or the problem statement. Essentially, I come up with what's the ideal state, what's the current reality, and what's the impact of the current reality. So we might say something like, in an ideal world, we would want all new employees to have submitted all of their their new hire paperwork online, even before the day they started the company. In reality, people are showing up at orientation and they've filled nothing out. And the impact of this is that we can't start our orientation session on time and and share with them the more strategic elements of our culture. So something as simple as that, I think, is a huge cornerstone of being able to show cost benefit or return on investment of your time towards fixing something. Believe it or not, I just don't see that Mm -hmm. as often as I'd like in my work. It takes maybe 15 seconds, 20 seconds to to pound something like that out. Bonus points, if you're able to quantify these things, like right now, only 10% of the people are showing up with their paperwork done. So I think starting with a problem statement is is totally key. And that's actually where I see a lot of practitioners fall down is they just want to spring to action. And then keeping track of the time and input. Sometimes I think we're spending our time on things that even if we fix it, it may not actually be worth our time to have done in the first place. And sometimes working on the people side of the business, at least for where my level is in the organizations, I respect that. I don't always have privy to all of the rationale for why certain things need to get done. Mm -hmm. Sometimes leadership above me has that and I don't, but sometimes we're not always clear. So starting with the problem statement, measuring what we're doing, and then doing a quick retrospective to see like, one, did it work? And two, how many resources did we have to put into it? Whether it's dollars, our time, whatever it is. And then three, was it really worth it? So it might be that when we think about the fictitious example of people filling out their benefits paperwork beforehand, we might interview a few people that did it and a few people that didn't and find maybe the problem isn't that they need to really have it filled out beforehand. Maybe the problem is that there's no value for them to get it done beforehand and that maybe we just need to change our onboarding to allow an hour or so, for example, to uh, walk people through filling this Mm -hmm. stuff out. Maybe they feel that they shouldn't have to do work for their new company until they actually start on day one, or maybe we provide better instructions, help, who knows. But in some cases, you got to ask yourself, was it really worth it anyway? So you may have achieved your goal, but come on, if it didn't matter, then then 
then it wasn't a good use of time. And in those cases, I think it's helpful to figure out why and what the common thread is to these things that maybe weren't worth our time to do. On the other hand, once there is success, finding the common thread of what made them success and, and why they were worth doing, I think is also important. You just can't solve everything. You got to prioritize. Well, right. That's right. And some things just really aren't worth, worth solving when there's higher level priorities. So that's really helpful. So more specifically, when you talk about ROI or direct impact, I'm assuming the ideal case is to always come back to either time or dollars saved or generated in terms of value. Is that how you typically think about it when you try to prove those business cases out? Mm. And when it came to the career lab, we might've thought about people help. And, you know, that was mm. a little bit harder to right. maybe quantify in a dollar. You can, you can derive it, right? These people may have left the organization. They may, who knows? I'm not always a big fan of, of ROI in, in training studies simply because I think we're probably good enough at a back of the napkin. Was it worth it? What's the cost benefit? Mm -hmm. I put in 20 hours last week on this. Geez, now over the next six months, I'm probably going to save 60 hours. Cost benefit, probably worth it. Start thinking ROI and dollar figures and we have to kind of extrapolate a lot of that. I find the people that really deal with the money don't often buy it. And I think we're here to make a positive difference. If we can do that, I'm willing to move on to the next thing. That makes absolute sense. So one other question for you, bringing this podcast more close to where we are today, how should organizations think about EX in today's truly rapidly changing workplace? Sure. There's a, there's a few ways that I recommend companies think about employee experience. And the first is maybe really simple but I don't think it can be understated. The first is that it's not really just HR's job. It's everyone's job at the company to help build the employee experience. And while there are HR people and processes that maybe have some expertise in this area, the idea that it belongs just to HR is one that I think we should get away from. When we work at these places, we're in an ecosystem where we all have a chance to make a difference. Holding the door for somebody and, and starting that kind of a trend or buying coffee for the person behind you. That's all part of employee experience. And we've got to get it out of our heads that it just HR owns it. And they may facilitate it. They may have a point of view on it, but we all own it, regardless of what seat you sit in. We all have the opportunity to make a difference mm -hmm. in the employee experience. That's one piece of it. The other is that we have to take the lens of what do we treat our customers this way? I've been involved in discussions where, where people say, we need that Google or that Facebook or Amazon experience in our web presence. And I would challenge them to say, that's good. And I agree. But when let's go look at how Google, Amazon, or Facebook treat their employees and what, what that experience looks like. And I think if you were to think about a company that has a lot of web presence, you would find that the tools that these companies that employees use kind of mirror what they're giving the customers. So thinking about our employees through the lens of would I give this to my best customer, I think is a helpful question to ask. And I learned this lesson really early in my career because I thought I'd, I'd cracked a nut on making an HR process more efficient. And I wasn't playing, paying attention to what that employee experience was. I was really proud of the potential efficiency. And the VP of HR had said, yeah, John, that's great, but it's not going to create a good experience. And I remember thinking about the dollars and cents and thinking like, well, who, who, cares, right? Where this is about money. And they said, <laughs> right. yeah, but you know, you got to remember, it's not about us. It's about them. And I think that phrase shifted my thinking at the time and, and stuck with me for the rest of my career. So 
I ran the co-working space. There were a million things I could have done to be more efficient. But ultimately, people paid me to come to work there because I made it about them, not really just about me. And mm -hmm. I think as practitioners, as people that work in organizations, we got to remember the mantra. It's not really just about us. It's about them. Those are the things that have worked for me the best over the years. Yeah, sometimes it's easy to get lost in what you're trying to do, what you think is best for the other party, whether it's customers or employees. But you've got to always take a step back and really think, why am I doing this and who am I doing it for? Um, so I think that right. mantra is like really helpful. So one last question for you, something fun. Sure. Your favorite local company, restaurant, or cafe that you want to give a shout out to? All right. Well, I'm going to break it down into two. So um, <laughs> I think my favorite local company is West Hartford Coworking. So I live in West Hartford, Connecticut, you know, outside of mm -hmm. Hartford, so central Connecticut. A little over a year ago, I sold West Hartford Coworking to a, a great gal named Anissa Teich. And that has to be one of my favorite companies in this area still. So, I mean, of course, it's near and dear to my heart because I owned right. it at one time. But the community of people that she built there and the needs that she's filling in the community and, and how she really rallied during this COVID-19 pandemic was nothing short of inspirational. So mm -hmm. West Hartford Coworking, I, I probably like it more now that I don't own it because I actually <laughs> like watching it from the side sidelines. Um, that's one of my favorite local companies and, and quite frankly, one of my favorite local people just in the way that she really rallied. And, you know, you think co-working space is about space, but what Anissa gets that most people don't is that it's about community. And she was able to, as far as I know, keep the space alive during the, the, the shutdown and shelter in place. So that's my favorite business. My favorite restaurant is a place called Max Burger. And for anyone not in this area, the Max Group owns many restaurants in this area and, and they're all branded somehow by Max. There's Max Fish, Max Steak, whatever it is. But there's a burger place and they have a couple of them and they do one of the best. It's one of the best places to take kids. So we'll take our one-year-old and our three-year-old uh, on a night where I had to work late or we couldn't get dinner together. And they recently, uh, and they recently reopened and we're doing curbside pickup and nice. they've got their operation so well. And you know, the reason why I think it was important not because we need to eat more hamburgers per se, but because it actually, you know, they opened sooner than, than some other places and it helped to uh, add some normalcy back in our lives right? with this whole pandemic. So big shout out to Max Burger. Awesome. Well, thank you, John, for your time. You know, this has been extremely, extremely insightful. Where can the audience find you and your thought leadership? So I'm on LinkedIn, John Vaselina. V is in Victor, A, S is in Sam, E, L, L, I, N is in Nancy, A. And LinkedIn is, you know, one of the best places to find me. Connect with me. I'm always happy to, to meet new people. And I assure you, I'll probably be one of the only Vaselinas on LinkedIn. <laughs> it's not that common of a last name. Awesome. Well, thank you, John, for coming in here. I really appreciate it. It was good to catch up. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to Working With People by PaveStep. Feel free to check us out on other episodes on pavestep.com slash podcast.